Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, my name is Joanna and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to CWB's Q4 earnings conference call and webcast. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during that time, simply press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, please press star, then two. Thank you, Mr. Matt Rudd. You may begin your conference. Thank you, Joanna. Uh, Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our fourth quarter 2020 financial results conference call. My name is Matt Rudd, and I'm the Senior Vice President leading our finance and investor relations team. I'd like to remind listeners and webcast participants that statements about future events made on this call are forward-looking in nature and based on certain assumptions and analysis made by management. Actual results could differ materially from expectations due to various risks and uncertainties associated with CWB's business. Please refer to our forward-looking statement advisory on slide number 18. The agenda for today's call is on the second slide. Presenting to you today are Chris Fowler, our President and Chief Executive Officer, and Carolyn Graham, our Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer. Following their presentations, we'll open the lines for the question and answer session. I'll now turn the call over to Chris. Thank you, Matt, and good morning. At CWB, we will remember 2020 as the year our teams came together to support our clients and each other in an unprecedented environment. Our team's response to this situation has been truly outstanding. And thanks to their diligent efforts, we proactively supported our clients through economic uncertainty. We also made significant progress on our own strategic initiatives, including the wealth management acquisition. We also delivered another quarter of solid results in a challenging operating environment. We entered this period of economic volatility from a position of stability and confidence due to the transformational changes we undertook over many years to strengthen and diversify our business. Our strong capital and funding base enabled us to continue to invest in our strategic priorities and support our clients when they needed us the most. At peak, We supported over 25% of our loan portfolio with payment deferrals. Since then, we have worked with our clients to resume normal payments and the percentage of outstanding loans with payment deferrals has now declined to approximately 1%. Three quarters of the clients who remain on payment deferral arrangements continue to pay the interest portion of the contractual payment. Our commitment to our clients has been prudent and we know will cement relationships for years to come. Our robust enterprise risk management framework continues to serve us well, and our credit performance remains strong in light of the economic conditions we face this year. We are actively using the majority of our AIRB tools to manage credit risk as we navigate the current volatility. Our original timeline anticipated approval to transition to AIRB by 2020 year-end. Six weeks ago, we provided an update 
that our approval timeline will now include completion of an AIRB parallel run while we continue to report regulatory capital under the standardized approach. We will use this next period to fully embed AIRB into our operations, including our enhanced stress testing capabilities. We expect to complete our parallel run in 2021, followed by finalization of OSFI's review. We continue to expect AIRB to create long-term meaningful and lasting value for shareholders, and the shift in the expected timing of approval does not change our view. We continue to make meaningful progress on all aspects of our strategic priorities. Strengthening our digital capabilities is a key deliverable to enhance our client experience. Earlier this year, Motive Financial launched digital onboarding so our clients can open accounts virtually and transact immediately. In November, we extended the end-to-end digital onboarding to all current and prospective personal clients. The wealth acquisition we closed in the third quarter is a transformative step for us to become a leader in the Canadian private wealth industry. The acquisition's fiscal 2020 financial results as well as client and team retention have been consistent with our expectations. This quarter, we initiated initiated a full integration of our wealth management operations to provide a differentiated private wealth experience to our clients. We also consolidated our equipment finance and leasing business under common leadership to further enhance client relationships and leverage our position as a $5 billion equipment finance and leasing operation. We believe these combined initiatives will augment full-service client growth across our expanding national footprint, particularly in Ontario, and support our strategy for continued growth of lower-cost sources of funding. Our expansion to meet the needs of business owners in Ontario is supported by our first full-service banking centre in Mississauga, which has surpassed all our initial performance expectations since the opening this summer. I'm very proud we've been recognized as one of Canada's most admired corporate cultures and one of the top 50 best workplaces in financial services and insurance. Our focus is to build a positive and inclusive culture to solidify CWB as a career destination for top talent. This external recognition affirms we're on the right path. Carolyn will provide a full update on our financial results. I'd like to highlight two pieces that stand out for me as continued demonstration that our strategy is yielding strong results. First, the 20% annual growth of branch raised deposits, including 4% growth in Q4. This is our seventh quarter in a row with robust branch raised deposit growth underpinned by strong full service client growth. Second, we continue to drive strong growth in Ontario, accounting for half of our 2% quarterly loan growth and 12% for the full year. Both of these achievements mark significant progress towards our goal to become the best full-service bank for business owners in Canada and position us to deliver profitable long-term growth and enhance shareholder returns for years to come. I will now turn the call over to Carolyn, who will provide detail on our fourth quarter financial performance and look ahead to 2021. Thank you, Chris, and good morning, everyone. Starting first with fiscal 2020, as you see on slide four, 
the impact of market disruption on the Canadian economy related to the COVID-19 global pandemic continues to put down pressure on our financial results compared to last year. Our fourth quarter common shareholders net income and adjusted earnings per common share were 6% and 4% lower respectively, as revenue growth was more than offset by non-interest expense growth and an elevated provision for credit losses on revenue loans. Our pre-tax pre-provision income was up 2%, as 7% revenue growth was partially offset by a 13% increase in adjusted non-interest expenses. We delivered a 3% increase in net interest income, as the benefit of 6% loan growth was largely offset by a 10 basis point decline in net interest margin. Our non-interest income was up 54%, primarily due to the fees contributed by the wealth acquisition, along with higher net gains on securities. Non-interest expenses increased with the impact of the wealth acquisition, costs incurred related to organizational redesign initiatives, along with continued investment in our teams and technology to support overall business growth. Organizational redesign initiatives will reduce operating costs and support accelerated delivery against our growth, digital transformation, and geographic diversification strategic priorities. They will also simplify the way we do business and improve our efficiency. Excluding the impact of the wealth acquisition and approximately $4 million of non-recurring costs related to the organizational redesign initiative, non-interest expenses grew 2%. The 26 basis point total provision for credit losses as a percentage of average loans was seven basis points higher than last year, reflecting a 15 basis point higher performing loan provision, primarily related to the adverse shift in forward-looking economic conditions, offset by an eight basis point lower provision on impaired loans, determined on a case-by-case basis for each individual account. As shown on slide five, compared to the third quarter, our common shareholders' net income and diluted EPS increased 2 and 3% respectively. Adjusted common shareholders' net income and adjusted EPS each increased 1%. Our total revenue increased 4% compared to last quarter due to 3% higher net interest income combined with 16% higher non-interest income. Our net interest income benefited from a 5 basis point sequential improvement in net interest margin along with 2% loan growth while non-interest income benefited from the full quarter contribution of the wealth acquisition, along with higher credit-related fees, partially offset by lower net gains on securities. Non-interest expenses were 12% higher. Excluding the wealth acquisition and non-recurring costs related to organizational redesign initiatives, non-interest expenses were up 7%, primarily due to the customary seasonal expense increases we typically see in the fourth quarter, combined with continued investment in technology to support overall business growth. Our provision for credit losses on total loans of 26 basis points was seven basis points below last quarter, and a lower provision on impaired loans was partially offset by an increase in the provision on performing loans, primarily due to the continued evolution of the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. For the full year, pre-tax pre-provision income increased 2%, while our common shareholders' net income and diluted EPS were down 7 and 6% respectively. Adjusted common shareholders' net income and adjusted EPS were down 8 and 7% respectively. The full-year decline in common shareholder net income reflects an elevated performing loan provision for credit losses, primarily due to the significant adverse shift in forward-looking economic conditions, combined with a lower net interest margin reflecting the lower interest rate environment. 
while non-interest expenses increased 8%, excluding the impact of the wealth acquisition and the non-recurring organizational redesign initiatives, non-interest expense growth was 2%. We continued to invest in our strategic priorities, but also tightly controlled our operating costs through the economic volatility this year. As slide seven displays, we delivered revenue growth this year in a very challenging environment. Following an initial contraction of net interest margin in the second quarter, as a result of the Bank of Canada's policy interest rate reductions, our net interest margin stabilized in the third quarter. And this quarter, our net interest margin improved sequentially by five basis points, from proactive deposit pricing changes in response to market conditions, along with continued very strong branch rate deposit growth. The NIM expansion, combined with 2% loan growth, generated 4% sequential growth in net interest income. Looking ahead to fiscal 2021, we expect net interest margin in the range of 2.45%, relatively consistent with the fourth quarter of fiscal 2020, with the potential for quarterly volatility. As we've noted in the past, our net interest margin is affected by many factors, including further Bank of Canada policy interest rate changes, competitive deposit pricing factors, changes to the cost-effectiveness or accessibility of funding channels, liquidity levels, as well as both loan growth and pricing. We expect growth of non-interest income across all categories in fiscal 2021, with the exception of net gains on securities, which are not expected to be material. Non-interest income is expected to represent approximately 12% of total revenue next year. Slide 8 reflects our success in broadening full-service client relationships across the country as we execute on key strategic objectives to grow and diversify funding sources. This quarter marks our seventh consecutive quarter with a strong sequential increase in branch rate deposits. Demand and notice deposits increased 34% this year and now comprise 39% of total funding compared to 31% last year. We drove branch rate deposit growth of 20% which resulted in a 13% reduction in the outstanding balance of broker deposits, which now represent 24% of total funding, down from 29% last year. The reduction in our reliance on the broker network reflects our ongoing efforts to diversify funding sources and drive more branch raised deposits as we generate additional full-service client relationships. I will note that the broker market remains a reliable and effective source of fixed-term retail deposits raised over a wide geographic base. You'll see on slide 9 that our total loans increased 6% in the past year, supported by 13% growth from our strategically targeted Venmo commercial portfolio and 12% growth in Ontario. This very strong general commercial growth reflects ongoing efforts to increase full-service relationships across our national footprint. We also achieved further geographic diversification, with Ontario representing almost half of loan growth in both Q4 and for the full year. Ontario-based loans now represent 23% of our total. On a sequential basis, 2% loan growth in the fourth quarter was consistent with the previous quarter. Strategically targeted general commercial loans benefited from strong growth in Ontario and commercial mortgages increased, primarily due to strong new lending volumes with well-capitalized, high-quality borrowers. We continue to drive growth in residential aid mortgages. Real estate project loans increased, primarily due to participation in syndicated facilities, partially offset by successful project completions. Looking ahead to 2021, our continued strategic execution positions us to capture increased market share within a larger addressable market. 
Continued uncertainty remains in how the next six months in particular will unfold with rising COVID-19 cases and vaccine delivery on the horizon. In the coming fiscal year, we expect to deliver mid-single-digit percentage loan growth whenever prudent, similar to this year. This includes a continued focus on originating secured loans that offer both an appropriate return and acceptable risk profile. Turning to slide 10, the credit quality of our portfolio and our provision for both impaired and performing loans under IFRS 9 continues to reflect the secured nature of our lending portfolio, disciplined underwriting practices, and proactive loan management, all hallmarks of our historic success. The fourth quarter, provision for credit losses on performing loans, calculated using our past performance as well as a forward-looking view of macroeconomic factors, totaled 16 basis points compared to one basis point last year and 11 basis points last quarter. At October 31st, our allowance for credit losses on performing loans totaled 130 million, an increase of 11 million or 9% compared to the previous quarter, and 41 million or 46% compared to last year. The five basis point sequential increase in the provision on performing loans was primarily driven by an adverse shift in current and predicted borrower default rates as the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic continues to evolve. Our performing loan allowance is estimated considering expectations for future macroeconomic factors, portfolio defaults, or increases in the internal risk rates of our loans. Ongoing shifts in these factors will continue to impact the allowance in future quarters. The provision for credit losses on impaired loans at 10 basis points declined from 18 basis points last year and 22 basis points last quarter and compares well with our five-year average of 22 basis points. Gross impaired loans at October 31st totaled 257 million, or 85 basis points of gross loans, and that's down from 283 million, or 95 basis points last quarter. The net decrease in impaired loans from last quarter was primarily driven by full or partial resolutions, all with no significant credit losses. Those resolutions included two significant Alberta-based commercial mortgage connections, a well-secured energy loan, and several equipment financing exposures. Our realized write-offs remained low this quarter and consistent with their history, even through periods of elevated levels of gross impaired loans. Our solid credit performance reflects our prudent underwriting and the secured nature of our lending portfolio. While there continues to be significant uncertainty in what lies ahead, we remain confident in the solid foundation of our secured and high-quality credit portfolio. Based on our current outlook for the Canadian economy, as described further in our MDA, we expect that our total provision for credit losses for fiscal 2021 will remain at elevated levels compared to 2019, but lower than the provision for credit losses we recognize for the full year of fiscal 2020. We also believe the composition of the provision for credit losses will shift and be weighted more heavily to impaired loans rather than performing loans as fiscal 2021 progresses. On slide 11, our dedicated teams remain in regular communication with our clients. As Chris noted, we've been successful in working with clients to resume normal payments, and the percentage of outstanding loans deferring payments has declined to about 1%, with three-quarters of those clients paying the interest portion of their contractual payments. Of the loans that have resumed making scheduled payments, October 31st, approximately 1% were past due and less than 1% were impaired. We continue to carefully monitor these loans and the entire portfolio for signs of weakness. We expanded our special asset management unit to support 
support our team as we work proactively with borrowers experiencing financial difficulties. On slide 12, we, we identify the proportion of loans categories as stage two for our estimate of expected credit loss, which now totals 34 basis points of total loans, compared to 23% last quarter and 6% a year ago. There are three ways that a loan will move from stage one to stage two. The first two relate to client-specific factors, either 30 days in arrears or on our watch list. The third factor is forward-looking and model-driven based on a prediction of future downgrade in internal borrowing risk rating of two or more notches since we originally funded that loan. Nearly 90% of our stage two balances at October 31st are driven by our modeled expectations and only 10% by borrower-specific behavior, consistent with last quarter. In contrast, a year ago, about half of our stage two loans were driven by our models and the other half by client behavior. We also see a lower blended loss rate in Q4 of 2020 compared to last year, as model-driven stage two loans tend to have better quality and therefore a lower expected loss even over their lifetime. Looking at slide 13, our capital ratios remain strong and stable through this economic volatility. Calculated using the standardized approach, at October 31st, our common equity tier one ratio was 8.8%, tier one was 10.9%, and our total capital ratio was 12.6%. At 8.5%, our Basel III leverage ratio remains very strong. Our set one capital ratio is 30 basis points lower than a year ago, reflecting our wealth management acquisition, and the ratio was unchanged from July 31st. This quarter, we bolstered our tier one and total capital levels through our successful issuance of limited recourse capital notes, making us the first bank outside of the large Canadian banks issue this Babel compliant tier one instrument. Chris previously noted the extended AIRB timeline. Approval will provide a boost to our regulatory capital ratio due to the more risk-sensitive measurement of risk-weighted assets compared to the standardized approach. The approval extension does not change our near-term financial outlook as OSFI's current industry restrictions limit the deployment of capital through increased dividends or share buybacks. We will continue to actively use our AIRB tools to manage credit risk. These tools have enhanced our risk management and stress testing capabilities and better equip us to manage through economic downturns and allocate resources to target business segments that generate the most attractive risk-adjusted returns. Yesterday, our board declared a common share dividend of $0.29 cents per share, consistent with the prior quarter, and up $0.01 cent or 4% from the dividend declared a year ago. Assuming the austerity restrictions remain in place, we expect to maintain our quarterly dividend at its current level through the next year. Speaking of fiscal 2021, our overall outlook is provided on slide 14. We know that the current economic volatility will pass and our planned investment in 2021 will support continued strategic execution to ensure we are well positioned for accelerated growth when the economy rebounds. Our 2021 financial performance will reflect a balance between continued investment in our ability to deliver an unrivaled client experience and recognition that revenue growth will continue to reflect the very low interest rate environment and curtailed economic activity. We will prudently manage expenses and continue to execute on priorities aligned with our strategic direction. Based on our expectations for a continued gradual recovery of the Canadian economy and the outlook I've already provided for several of our key performance drivers, in fiscal 2021, we expect to deliver adjusted earnings per common share and adjusted ROE 
relatively consistent with fiscal 2020, a strong set one capital ratio, and an elevated efficiency ratio compared to our historic experience as we continue to execute on our strategic priorities, including a full year contribution from our wealth acquisition. We will also extend the costs associated with operating as an AIRB bank, including amortization of our accumulated capital costs. And with that, I'll turn it over to Chris to discuss our 2021 strategic priorities. Thank you, Carolyn. The strategic investments we have made over the past 10 years support our solid results this year and have created great momentum. We've been through economic cycles before and know how to capitalize on the opportunities that emerge as the economy rebounds. In 2021, we will further optimize our business to ensure we are positioned to deliver on our future opportunities to provide unrivaled experiences to our clients. We will continue to enhance our boutique full-service client experience with a focus to optimize client-facing interactions, leverage the synergies created with our equipment financing leasing strategy, and enhance our wealth management offering through further integration. We will further advance our business transformation and digital capabilities to ensure we are well positioned to accommodate an expected permanent shift in client preference towards digital banking. Our success in digital onboarding personal clients in 2020 will be expanded to onboard small business and mid-market commercial clients in 2021. We continue to replace our existing online platform with a seamless end-to-end digital banking experience for business and personal clients, complemented by our high-touch personalized service. This will allow us to continue to diversify our business across Canada by attracting new clients both within and outside our branch footprint, while further broadening our access to lower-cost funding. Our expected transition to the ARB methodology for regulatory capital and risk management, while delayed, will enhance our growth potential. With approval, improved risk-sensitive capital ratios will better reflect the strength of our balance sheet. Combined with the launch of our digital capabilities, AIRB will make us more competitive, support higher growth, and achieve further diversification with an enhanced view of risk. Achieving this next step will be a foundational capability to realize our full potential across Canada. With that, operator, let's open the lines for Q&A. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we will now begin the question and answer session. Should you have a question, please press the star followed by the one on your touchtone phone. You will hear a three-tone prompt acknowledging your request. And if you are on a speakerphone, please lift the handset before pressing any keys. One moment, please, for your first question. First question comes from Manny Grauman at Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Uh, First question on credit. Uh, The impaired uh, PCL ratio came in really low uh, this quarter, you talk about uh, impairments increasing uh, as we move uh, uh, into 21, later into 21. Just wondering where you see that ratio peaking out uh, in, in 21. We've, we've um, you know, we've sort of looked at the overall total PCO ratio. We think it'll be somewhere between where we were in 2020 and a more normal and a more normal time, probably heavily skewed to impair. So we don't have an exact number, but we, we expect that the majority of the PCL in 2021 will likely come on the impaired side. Okay. And um just on the 
on the issue of deposits, so you keep highlighting uh, very strong uh, demand branch raised deposits. Um, you know, the, trying to disaggregate uh, the success of your efforts versus just the broader trends that are boosting uh, deposits um, uh, across uh, across uh, banks. So we're seeing a very strong deposit growth. So just trying to get a sense of maybe the best way to ask is just how sticky do you feel those deposits are? Um, and as you look out to 21, how do you see that growth progressing? Could you see uh, a decline in, in deposits somewhere uh, into 21 if, if the recovery really gets going? How do you, how do you view uh, commercial deposits uh, as we move uh, further into 21, assuming, assuming the vaccine rolls out and, and, and things look better? Yeah, um, great question. I mean, you know, we've looked carefully at where the growth came from in 2020. Um, about two-thirds of it came from new clients, um, which was very positive. We've also seen good growth in full-service client relationships, which means we're not only the lender of choice for those clients, but we also have their deposits and operating accounts. Um, and so that's very positive signs for us. Our expectations for Overall, branch trade deposit growth in 2021 are not as robust as, as the very strong results in fiscal 2020, um, but still are expected to exceed loan growth. Okay, and, th and then um, just on uh, on the uh, uh, subject of loan growth, uh, you talk about sort of mid-single digits. Just wondering in terms of composition by type, do you see any change from what we saw this year in terms of strength in, in uh, general commercial loans? Is there any sense that uh, the pattern we saw in 20 will be any different in 21? And, uh, you know, if you could talk uh, sort of dynamics as we move later into 21, do you see anything changing in terms of where you expect uh, the growth to come from? Uh, Mindy, I, I would say that the focus we've had on building general commercial continues and the continued improvement in our capabilities with, with digital uh, front end that also is coming in 2021 will also enhance our ability to continue to support our uh, general commercial growth. So that is really a very significant focus. We also are looking to integrate our wealth management operations as much as possible into uh, generating more clients and a bigger uh, portion of their uh, of their wallet. So it's really lots of opportunity we see in front of us. Uh, general commercial is great. We also look at equipment finance with our uh, one equipment strategy to uh, pull all of our equipment finance operations under common management. And we see that will create synergy too, but that will take time as we work our way through 2021. Um, but, you know, solid areas that um, we're supporting with, uh, I think, very effective uh, uh, internal processes and strategy to enhance them. In terms of the re real estate project loans, do you see any material change in, in that in 21? Well, we've got a really solid core client base in, in, our, in, our, in our meaningful areas of, uh, of participation, Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, Toronto. Um, we absolutely will, you know, continue to manage that. That's always been a very important book for us. Um, and I think our, our borrowers have been very prudent in how they are looking at the market and determining how they, they take their projects forward. So, you know, looking at the that project growth, we had a decline in our BC 
book really with sort of a slowdown in Vancouver, but an increase in Toronto. So, you know, we are very uh, attentive to the clients and, and being very prudent in our participation. But we do like the book and we'll continue to, you know, ensure that we participate in the, uh, you know, the, in the appropriate, prudent way. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Minnie. Thank you. The next question comes from Paul Holden at CIBC. Please go ahead. Thank you. Good morning. I want to ask you a question on Alberta, and recognizing that it's not specific to oil and gas, but just you know the province more broadly. Are you starting to feel and see signs of improvement in Alberta, um, given um, you know higher oil and gas prices and I guess that's partly offset by COVID, but just wondering what you're seeing there in terms of recent trends. I would say that Alberta still is in a, in a pattern where we, we're looking for, you know, more signs for recovery. We have stability in certain sectors, absolutely. The um, I think the stability of the oil price is uh, positive, so we do see some, um, you know, opportunities there. We still have... Uh, Construction occurring with the TMX um, pipeline. We have construction on KXL. The uh, now it's probably more BC. The LNG Canada is, uh, is is proceeding. The you know so if we if we kind of look at the core of the province, it, for us it is overrepresented in our gross impaired loan loans. But we have been stable. We have a lot of very strong clients in Alberta that we continue to support, and you know we we will continue to be very prudent and and focused on how we continue to move Alberta forward. Yeah. That's actually it's a it's it's a good segue to the my next question, which is with respect to performing allowances given some of the you know positive developments on, on, on oil prices and the likelihood we see a vaccine sooner than later. Are there plausible scenarios you potentially see where maybe you're over-reserved on credit right now and you could see those performing allowances uh, reverse at some point in 21 or 22? Well, I, I would, you know, I, I start from a position, Paul, that we are conservatively provided and I'm very comfortable with where our allowance sits on the uh, on performing loans and impaired. Um, but certainly, you know, we are still Macro forecasts that we've used for Q4 still anticipate a slow recovery. So if things recovered better than that or more quickly than that, or the economic impact of the second wave, which we expect to be less severe than the first, was even better than anticipated, that's all a possibility. Certainly, we started you know, Q1, Q4 of last year, Q1 of this year, that was a benign, you know, that was our allowance with a benign credit environment and expectations. So certainly, when we return to that uh, macroeconomic viewpoint, we would expect that the performing loan allowance would trend down as well. Understand. Okay. Uh, final one for me, and I think this is an important one to understand, is just with respect to the AIRB and this test through 2021. I guess. What I need to better understand is, is it sort of a, a, a 12-month test, and then we'll see where it goes from there? Or how, how, how do we view this in terms of just the longevity of, of running parallel systems? Yeah, so 
you know, we're starting with a with a with a parallel run. We expect that to take about a year. You know, we are we continue to put the plan together of all of the different components of that to fully implement and meet the USTEP requirements. Um, and then we turn it back over to AFI to uh, recommence their review. Understood. Thank you for your answers. That's it for me. Thank you. The next question comes from Gabrielle Deshane at National Bank. Please go ahead. Good morning. Uh, just a follow-up on the ARB thing, and apologies if I missed the explanation, but why, like the, earlier in the year, it sounded you know, like we were going to get it this year and now it's delayed uh, outside of, you know, COVID-related uh, elements. Oh, well, that's a big exception, but uh, why was the delay uh, taking place? Okay, but as, as we work our way through it, it's uh, we are a commercially focused bank, so we have a number of models that we are ensuring to capture the risk-sensitive nature of the businesses into which we lend. So we're very focused in making sure that the manner into which all of our internal processes work um, really does identify and manage the risk to inform our uh, our um, ability to generate and calculate our capital levels. So what we get with the additional um, parallel run is just more time to, to prove out the risk sensitivity of the models and show their ability to capture the, um, the trends in, in this uh, pandemic environment. So, so fine-tuning, refining the model type thing. Yeah, it'll just be it'll be as Carolyn said, the use test, making sure that the operation is reflective of the condition of the portfolio, and as the economy changes, that it's captured. Okay. Uh, the the real estate project loan book, and I know you addressed this earlier, but uh, you know, and that's one where I. Don't think uh, demand is so much the problem, but uh, you know, could could supply be the uh, you know what's what? And when I mean demand and supply, I'm talking about land and development. Uh, land uh, is is that improving in any way um, in, in the next year, in your view? The project. Um, if I if I look at our our portfolio of uh, of borrowers we have today. Um, you know, I, I really, as I said before, they, they are, they've been very prudent in how they, what they're deciding to take to market. Um, they've been, uh, you know, looking at uh, securing locations that they believe will, you know, obviously support uh, client demand. The, uh, you know, so as we, as we look at that, I, I, we really believe that our, our key tier one borrowers are in very good position to, to, mm -hmm. to uh, take advantage of, of where this market will be. Um, you know, we, we see still continued good performance in, in the book, um, but, you know, clearly just given where the economy is at, you know, people are just uh, being more wary as they bring forward with uh, new projects. Okay. And, and just to wrap up on the, uh, the NIM uh, uh, outperformance, a uh, couple times that's happened this year, that's great. Uh, the the deposit uh, shift is, it seems to be like uh, one of the main drivers here. Correct me if I'm wrong there, because it's replacing the uh, you know broker deposits in your your funding uh, structure. Can you give me a, a pricing differential quantification, like uh, for every dollar of deposit uh, that you raise in the branch versus the brokers? Like, how, what's the spread pickup there? Yeah, the variance, the, the differential between 
average branch rate is the entire bucket and broker is in and around 25 basis points. Okay. That's yeah. pretty con consistent historically though, right? Huh. Pretty consistent historically, um, fixed to fixed. Yeah, it's, it's um, but as we continue to expand our notice and demand in branch full service client relationships, we have the opportunity to expand that differential. And, and just to wrap up, how much of that uh, growth over the past year came from the Ontario branch? I know it's just one, but it's a big province. And and I guess uh, where I'm going with that is that, you know, we expect this frothy deposit growth to slow down. But given that you've got the geographic uh, angle here in new geography, that you can actually maintain, you know, pretty high deposit growth rates for, for, for quite some time. Yeah. So, you know, the branch opened in August still in a pandemic world, so I would say from a, I mean, the deposit growth of that one branch was from zero to a number that's not very large in our overall um, growth in deposits okay. for the year, but we're, you know, we're pleased with the interest of clients who want to talk to us, who want to engage with the folks that we have in that branch, um, and we're really pleased with um, the first few months and what we're seeing there, so we, we know there's great potential for us. All right, thanks, and uh, early happy holidays. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Thank you. The next question comes from Sorab Movahedi at BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Okay, thank you. Um, just maybe two or three quick questions. Um, Chris, are you, you know, throughout the, the footprint and uh, different lines of business, are you seeing available loan growth that your risk appetite is having you pass up on? So I would say that we always have been careful on how we choose loans. We are very targeted in the areas in which we lend. Um, you know, the challenge we are finding right now, too, is um, even good quality ones, we're seeing a lot of pricing challenge, too, that we have to decide whether we participate at, uh, at, at the yield levels that are being uh, offered by the other banks. So. I would say the answer to that would be yes, we are continuing to be selective. We're making sure that we're adhering to our appetite, but also um, a lot of internal talk on uh, pricing discipline as well. Okay, that's good. Thank you. And, and Caroline, did I, did I hear you correctly that this quarter includes about $4 million of kind of elevated expenses that you expect will go away next year? So um, what we described as organizational redesign initiatives, about $4 million, um, in the fourth quarter. About half of that we expect to be reductions in our, in our long-term run rate. The other half is being reinvested in both enhancing a number of our branches to deliver the, what we call the branch of the now experience for our clients who still are looking to deal with us in branch, and also reinvesting into our digital roadmap. Okay, perfect. Thank you for that clarity. And the last thing, can you just repeat what you said about uh, your expectations for EPS and ROE next year? So EPS and ROE roughly consistent with uh, with 2020. But but in like how so? When I are you talking about like an EPS growth or an EPS dollar? Dollar. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thanks, Sora. 
Thank you. The next question comes from Darko Mihalik from RBC. Please go ahead. Hi there, uh, and good morning. I've got a question on the, um, the Stage 2 loans, and specifically, uh, specifically personal loans and mortgages, 61% in Stage 2. That seems high. And I realize, I realize the model um, result, um, but nevertheless, it does seem high. And so the question is, A, if you can perhaps walk me through the, the sort of modeling that went behind it, and then secondarily, um, you know, are there any real-world uh, ramifications for having such a high level in Stage 2, for example, one would think if you really are that concerned um, with that level of personal loans and mortgages, you might turn to your sales force and say, well, six out of 10 of those mortgages we used to underwrite, we're not going to do now. Um, so you know, any help along yeah. that, along those yeah. lines would be helpful. So I'm going to start, so let me start with sort of the process of the, the process of the model, but the factors that drove that relatively high level of stage two related to personal loans and mortgages, primarily due to the short, relatively short duration of that portfolio, about 55% of our personal loans and mortgages are comprised of the optimum portfolio. So they tend to be one to two years in term. And the volatility that we're seeing in the macroeconomic factors since specifically unemployment and GDP, which are the two primary factors for that model, the volatility over the next 12 months. Um, and so there, the stage two movement is coming from the volatility in the next 12 months, which then doesn't capture the recovery that comes after that 12-month period. So that's primarily the factor that's driving the, the increase and the larger balance in um, in stage two, as we think about, um, I'm going to let Chris answer the one about whether the business changes. Um, but we've not seen a commensurate increase in past due balances related to Optimum. We've seen really good progress in them bringing their payments on uh, clients on payment deferral down and, and having those clients restart payments. So we aren't seeing indicative signs in the book to corroborate that model outcome in uh, in the stage two balances. Yeah, and that's, uh, I think that's a key. You know, overall in stage two, we have 87% uh, of the stage two balances are model driven. And uh, and that is, uh, I mean, it's an interesting outcome as we are in this pandemic. It's uh, it's a, a an area that we're managing. And so, and, but coming back to our personal loans and mortgages on the optimum side, you know, we have been focused on how we do the underwriting and ensure that we are focusing on what we would call our Alt-A Plus book, where we've got, um, you know, key um, income confirmation structures, key B20 compliance stories, and a real focus on how we uh, manage that at a low loan-to-value as well. We've had a very strong historic track record in this book. We're not seeing from a gross impairment perspective and net charge-offs perspective, any change in that book, which historically has been on the net charge-offs of four basis points. So it's been a strong book, but, you know, we are continuing to monitor our underwriting 
And then to Carolyn's point, the model is capturing the duration of these models in a very volatile economy. And then the only other piece I just I just come back and circle back on Darko is that um, this portfolio Chris talked about our historic loss rates. The LG is very low, so it's the, having a larger proportion in stage two hasn't driven out a materially higher allowance for credit loss. No, I, I can appreciate that, and that, yeah. that's sort of what I thought. But what about real-world ramifications? So if, if I have 10 mortgages coming due for, um, you know, in, in January, does that mean six out of 10 of them, you're going to kind of, you know, do something different? Uh, does, how does it, does it change any behaviors? Well, not necessarily, because, I mean, if, the, if it goes into stage two, if there's a two-notch change in the risk rating, and it could go, it still could be well within our, our, our band of acceptable rating. So it's not that these are all turning into uh, loans that you would look to uh, not renew. Um, you know, so it just it's it's a function of how the model works as opposed to necessarily um, the choice that you would uh, like reduce your retention rate on existing mortgages. So that but that's a great question. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting the the way the model works. You know, so theoretically, any loan that was originated in a pre-COVID world should be showing signs of pressure that could potentially move it to stage two just by virtue of what the macroeconomic factors have done. With those optimum mortgages, when we revisit them on renewal and consider um, offering another commitment letter to those borrowers, the stage one, stage two allocation starts fresh again. So the comparison of whether there's an, there's an expected two-notch downgrade starts from when we have underwritten that new loan again at renewal. So if the economy improves from there, those mortgages should be stuck firmly in stage one and have little risk of moving to stage two in the future. Thank you for that. And I, I'm going to follow up with, um, it was my understanding that the optimum portfolio, um, or is it not the optimum portfolio? Now I'm getting a little confused. I have to go back and look at my notes. But for the AIRB modeling, um, I thought that it was the mortgage book that was in a very advanced state. Is that still true? And does this have any sort of read through um, for AIRB? No, you're right. Optimum mortgage and national leasing were the two portfolios where the models were put into use first um, on the on the credit side. Um, IFRS 9 models all came into play at the same time when we went live. Um, so I wouldn't. I wouldn't say there's a read-through. Okay. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks, Sarko. Thanks, Sarko. Thank you. The next question comes from Lamar Prasad at Cormark. Please go ahead. Thanks. I just have a really quick point of clarification on an earlier answer. So I just want to be clear with the with respect to the outlook for PCLs because it's a little bit different than I would have thought. So based on where we stand today in 2021, we should expect rising impaired PCLs, but that's not necessarily going to be offset by performing releases. I just want to make, make sure that I'm clear on that. Well, we expect our overall PCL to moderate down from our overall 2020 PCL rate. So we don't expect it to return to normal pre-COVID, but we do expect it to moderate it down from its 2020 level. And if we look at 2019, all of our 22 basis points full year PCL was related to impaired loans and none was related to the allowance for 
as a performing loan allowance. 2020, we've seen a material portion of the PCL for 2020 going towards the performing loan allowance and less going towards the uh, impaired. In 2021, we expect there to be a shift over the year. So although we expect the total to be down from fiscal 2020, we do expect the impaired portion of the PCL through 2021 to be higher than it was in 2020. You know, we expect that gross impaireds will continue to tick up. What we saw in the global financial crisis that our, our gross impaireds peaked a year after the economy turned. So we do expect that there will be clients that we'll be working with over the next year or two. So there would be more impaired PCLs, but within a total provision that we expect to trend down from the 2020 level. Okay, that's great, thank you. Thanks, Omar. Thank you, and your next is a follow-up from Gabriel Deshane at National Bank. Please go ahead. Right, I, I just wanna follow up on Sora's line of questioning. You said the uh, EPS number next year will be consistent. So you did 293 this year and adjusted. Next year should be somewhere around that number. I'm just trying to uh, understand that because the way I look at it, your exit rate on margins higher. PCL, the dollar value PCL total next year should be lower than this year. Your loan base is higher, um, unless it's a big ramp up in expenses I'm, I'm kind of i'm struggling a bit with the lack of growth message so we expect nim to hold constant from q4 but we did have four months in fiscal 2020 before interest rates fell so we will be having the wrap on uh, mm -hmm. on, uh and then you know so um loan growth as we mentioned mid-size or mid-tier we talked about PCLs. We do expense expenses to be higher. We're going to have, you know, in 2020, we have five months of the wealth acquisition. We will have 12 months in fiscal 2021. We have, um, we have begun to expense the cost of operating as an AIRB bank, and we have also begun to amortize the cumulative capital costs of that program. So that's about an $8 million Increase mm. to a run rate on NIEs for the year, so about two million a quarter. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so our guidance around the efficiency ratio is trending a bit higher than our historical All right. rate. Yeah. Okay, that helps. Uh, thank Great. you for the clarification. Thank you. There are no further questions at this time. I will now turn the call over to Chris Fowler for closing remarks. Uh, thank you, operator. Uh, this concludes our question and answer period. We'll now turn the call. Uh, I'll now just uh, conclude. And I would like to take a moment to thank our investors for the continued support and our teams for their tremendous efforts. As we navigate the challenges of the current environment, we continue to execute our strategy to create long-term value for our stakeholders. We have a history of strong performance and have built a solid platform to, prove, to prudently accelerate our growth as opportunities arrive. We appreciate your confidence in CWB, and we look forward to reporting our first quarter financial results in February. With that, we wish you and your families a happy and healthy holiday season. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes your conference call for today. We thank you for participating, and we ask that you please disconnect your lines.
Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.